Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hunter Gatherers podcast. This time, we're speaking to Sophie Grick, who is a campaigner at Survival International. Survival is an organization that campaigns for the rights of Indigenous peoples around the world. Sophie herself has visited numerous uh, communities, uh, Indigenous communities, including a uh, Penan group in Borneo. Uh, she's been to Sumatra to visit some. Orong Rimba people, as well as to the Taiga and to the Amazon. We spoke about conservation, uh, the problems around conservation, wildlife conservation, um, that indigenous people face being evicted from, you know, evicted from their own homelands uh, and also forced schooling. And she also shares some beautiful stories of the times she spent in the forest with uh, some of the Penan people that she's befriended and, and the Orang Rimba people that she knows. It was a really wonderful conversation. And unfortunately, Tequin couldn't join us because he's just, he said he's very busy with some projects that he has to finish. And actually, to be honest, I forgot to tell him the date and time. So we'll have to do this again because I think they'll have a really interesting concert, uh, conversation about conservation. Anyway, here's the conversation that I had with Sophie Greg. What sort of projects or campaigns are you working on right now? So a lot at the moment on conservation. So I've been doing a lot of work with communities in India who are threatened with or have been forcibly evicted in the name of tiger conservation. So mm-hmm. There's a supposedly voluntary relocation project um, in India where they, people, it's supposed to be voluntary that they can come out, but it's not in the least bit voluntary. It's enforced and pressured and people are sort of threatened and harassed and tricked and lied to until they agree to come out of the forest and then the promises that are made to them are not kept. And so we've been exposing that and and campaigning against that and then more generally about decolonizing conservation around the world where we see the same thing happening in uh well particularly in africa and asia where conservation is used as an excuse to drive out indigenous communities ironically of course because Mm -hmm. they're the best conservationists and it's no coincidence that pretty much everywhere you find fantastic biodiversity is where indigenous people live because they're the ones that have been managing and protecting that land for generations. And then conservationists and governments turn up and decide they know how to do it better and try and chuck them out. So the the people in, in India, they're uh, others, um, the Nayaka, I I forget the name of the different uh, groups one of them being the I always see them mentioned in one of the books as one of the hunter gatherer groups uh, Akaya I, I can't remember but do you yeah, know the names of the groups well there's many so obviously there's 104 million Adivasis indigenous people in India um, so I'm not sure I don't know the names of every single sure. one <laughs> okay um, maybe the Kutanayakans is that could be um maybe they've come up I, and whereabouts i mean they must be uh spread out i imagine yeah so yeah. they're all over from sort of assam so we've been working with communities up in assam with kazaranga national park and then down in the south it with uh jenny karuba in um Nagaholi national park and chenchu more centrally and so different communities all over that are affected because it's a it's a nationwide project tiger to which is a push to make tiger reserves and protected areas inviolate which they interpret as meaning empty of people yeah it's really sad the the idea that humans don't belong in nature the idea that um you know, there's there's the human world and then there's the wild world and the two shall never meet except for with a fo- you know with photographs and leave nothing but footprints this sort of mentality it's 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 a it's a sad one and it, unfortunately the the the, narr- the dominant narrative that a lot of people subscribe to especially the governments and corporate corporate world um, and unfortunately a lot of people as well just tend to believe subscribe to that as well and uh yeah they yeah. when people talk I, I saw yesterday on the um survival instagram uh your director stephen Corey, 
uh, maybe it's Stefan, but he, uh, he made a point about how humans, there's this narrative of humans as a virus. Mm. I, I, f- I find that very annoying as well. And he, he, he pointed out how untrue it is and how, how dangerous this narrative is. And we should really abandon it because there's people who humans just like us who don't destroy the planet, who don't destroy the biodiversity, who are perfectly part of the, the community of life that, that uh, exists around them. And I, I remind that of, of certain friends who are quite uh, nihilistic and, uh, uh, you know, depressed about the state of things. And it's hard for them somehow to see beyond that narrative. I don't know if you've, how does, I mean, how, how much success have you had or how your attempts at survival at um, sort of changing people's minds about that? Well, obviously that's one of our objectives is to challenge that narrative and to challenge this sort of notion of a wilderness. And people have this idea of wildernesses that almost always either include indigenous people who are living sustainably on that land that they perceive as wilderness or they used to be there but have been thrown off because of this whole notion of sort of separating people from wildlife and separating people from nature and biodiversity and so it's definitely been one of the things that we've sought to challenge and to ensure that the voices of indigenous people and their own conservation and obviously you know they're the original conservationists they're the people who've been preserving and protecting the forest and with the most incredible knowledge of the wildlife the plants the the forest you know so actually informing people of that challenging that narrative challenging the notion of wilderness itself you know those are really important things that we've been pushing for many years now unfortunately it's a bit of a religion, actually, I think, for a lot of people, conservation and this sort of idea of animals, the, the things that people say on social media, if you, you know, we've been posting a lot about WWF and their involvement in funding guards that kill and torture people in conservation areas. And, the, you know, you get astonishing responses on social media of people saying, well, you know, killing them's not killing people who are perceived as poachers, even though they're often not people actually poaching or they're hunting to feed their families. Um, you know, killing them's not good enough. And, you know, oh, well, if I know that WWF is funding people who are going to kill poachers, then I'd, you know, I'll give them more money. And you just think this astonishing sort of separation of, of, of people from humanity, from wildlife. And, it's based on such a poor understanding of the reality for indigenous people. You know, you talk to, uh, you know, talking to a, a Chenchu friend. So Chenchus are hunter gatherers in or in India, living in a tiger reserve. And I get a message from from Lila, one of my Chenchu friends, saying, you know, oh. A, a, Tiger has just killed one of my cows and he sent me a photo of the cow, you know, the remains of the cow. And I said, oh, you know, sorry to hear that. And he said, oh, well, no, but the tiger's our big brother and he has to, he has to eat, you know, we're happy and we understand that's, you know, that's part of living here. And it's for them, it's just, that is a part of living and coexisting with the tiger is that you share that with the tiger and that you know that that's going to happen sometimes, but it's, it's part of that coexistence. And, you know, just that sort of understanding of people living with wildlife and knowing the forest and knowing how to sort of be in the forest and protect it is so alien and so separate from the people who are writing those horrible messages on social media or viewing people as a virus or thinking that everybody should be moving out and the animals should be left you know alone and just don't have an understanding of that sort of symbiotic relationship is uh, so many i have so many thoughts and <laughs> that i want to come out but i have to choose and pick right now but yeah um there's a, when I was in Malaysia in, um, well, what is Malaysia? But uh, I was in the forest with some 
friends who uh, were telling me a story of when they were out with uh, one of the indigenous um, men that we both know. And they're saying how they were out and then they heard this, this noise and it was a tiger. And they said, the, the, they asked him, you know, uh, what's that noise? Well, it was a tiger crying. Uh, it was an infant male tiger or a juvenile, sorry, a juvenile. And it was making um, a noise sounding to its mother asking and this is what the the um mayam our friend who's a part of the batek people he said it's a juvenile male asking his mom if he's far enough from her territory yet because he's just moving out that's the that's the kind of knowledge that they have yeah. in, and how closely they live uh with tigers it's it's really incredible that we don't think that uh or that this this society we have thinks they're you know, people can't live together, but of course, civilization or this this uh, grand push of development, you know, so-called development, needs those people to be out of there. It needs this narrative to to be fulfilled of humans and nature cannot coexist. It's uh, it's almost like they have to prove it. You know, they have to remove the evidence of anyone that that can prove yeah. us otherwise. Uh, it's really yeah. sad. And then, I mean, it's such a waste because if the conservationists actually spoke to and learned from the communities that have this incredible knowledge, you know, they would be able to together conserve and, and protect so much better. But by evicting the very people who have the greatest knowledge and who are there protecting and living amongst all you know in this in their own land in those places that it's so detrimental so it's damaging to the cause of conservation whilst at the same time being sort of ridiculous and 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 so wrong i i think in in um there's an organization called my cat and they do actually work with the the batik uh, people for tracking uh, and and learning about the mostly tigers i think they also work with the um I think there's snow leopards, not snow leopards, obviously, but uh, cloud leopards, yeah. cloud leopards or something. So they do uh, work with them. And I don't think they're pushing for the removal of the indigenous people, but definitely the bigger ones seem to, right? Like WWF seems to be a very problematic one. I know Tequin, he's not here, but he wanted to ask about specifically, you know, uh, survival's campaign in 2019 around uh, what, would, what WWF was doing, World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, I mean, WWF is, is you know, obviously one of the biggest uh, conservation organizations, but they're not alone. The, the other big conservation organizations, WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society, you know, many of the conservation organizations are pushing this sort of same narrative of sort of wildlife and people as separate, um, who are supporting this fortress model of conservation. So supporting a model... Um, which is particularly prominent in Africa and Asia, where indigenous people and local communities are evicted from their land, or if they're not evicted, there are so many restrictions are placed on them that effectively they can no longer hunt and gather and collect firewood in their forests, and so are um, separated from their means of resources and um, impoverished in that way. And those, so these organizations are funding eco guards, they're funding the this whole sort of process of setting up of these parks, which are throwing indigenous people off their land. The, the eco guards are routinely beating torturing, arresting, killing in some places, indigenous people in the name of conservation. And if this was happening in the land of a mining company, you know, <laughs> there would be an uproar. But for some reason, when it's happening in the name of conservation, conservation is viewed as somehow a positive and somehow sort of unquestionably good. And we, we know actually from, from records from um, government funding bodies that they they haven't done the same level of due diligence and they've admitted this that they 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 assume that conservation is a good and so they're not questioning the 
fact that they're paying armed guards and they're not, you know, they're, they're continuing to fund these these um, guards who have terrible human rights records of, of killing people. In Kazaranga in the um, in Assam in northeast India, 50 people were shot dead, shot, killed, shoot on sight um, in a three-year period in, in Kazaranga. And the narrative is always the same. You know, they always say, we, um, we came across the poachers, they shot first, we fired back, they're dead. In fact, no guards were killed during that time. So it's impossible to believe <laughs> this narrative. And WWF is training those guards. They're training them in combat and ambush, um, providing them with sort of thermal effectively night vision goggle type things they don't see that in any way as a, a sort of contradiction or a challenge to their repu- you know their human rights record mm-hmm. you know they seem to think that's fine why are they not you know why are they continuing to fund and not questioning and this is happening you know in where wwf is working where other conservation organizations are working where appalling human rights abuses are happening and it's just sort of brushed aside and and wwf there was a big investigation into it or they provide you know produced this so-called independent investigation which found all the allegations of the funding of guards but who killed and tortured etc to be true but sort of brushed it aside and you know said well you know wwf ought to be a little bit you know more careful when it monitors and it ought to train its you know and set up some better sort of complaints mechanisms but actually didn't address the fact that this is a massive systemic problem wherever you have conservate you know this fortress conservation model Hmm. the um there was a case also in Thailand of a, I think a boy, a teenager. Um, I would, he was uh, foraging, and also the guards, I think, beat him to death as well. There, I believe it was Thailand. So this, it, it happens everywhere, and it's it's mm. really, it's sad. Um, there was a thought I, I was thinking, um, and it slipped my mind. Just hearing those stories are, it's it's horrible. And oh, this is, and then when they they create these parks, and then you know when industry when push comes to shove, you know, they want some other government changes. Uh, well, let's, uh, it doesn't need to be a park anymore anyway. Right. Then yeah. conversation conservation uh, gets pushed aside too. When, when they need to build a pipeline or um, I'm thinking of Tamanagara in, uh, in peninsular Malaysia, they just built a road through uh, yeah. the lower half of it. Uh, why not? Right. We need to build this road here. It, um, uh, well, conservation move over. So even even that um, whole you know that sacred cow of conservation, it's sidelined when when it comes to progress and development and so on. It's yeah, and so much and tourism as well. You know, mm-hmm. the number of people who say to us, you know, why we're thrown out or they're trying to force us out, but tourists are allowed in, and the tourists are there in their jeeps, sort of pursuing the tiger, chasing mm-hmm. the tigers around, trying to photograph them, whereas the communities who are living sort of side by side from the tiger uh, somehow viewed as as the threat and, and as as bothering the tiger and huge sort of tourist industries set up around the parks when and it, it's just astonishing it's it makes <laughs> it makes no logical sense no but it's you know money talks and it's those organizations get money from that industry they advertise those things you know and it's it's part of the cycle and and it's it's a tragedy for the people whose lands are stolen or who are thrown out and the very people who should be the ones leading the conservation movement and you know protecting they're continuing to protect Mm -hmm. in their forest the 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 problem is that uh, in this this economy that we have this this uh civilization there's no economic value i mean there's no economic value in keeping that forest intact with the indigenous people there when we could tear it down and sell the timber and then uh, build uh, something on top of it you know and then um, and and by doing conservation and saying well this little plot of land is the example we have of uh primary or whatever wildlife so that we can tear everything else down you know, inside these little walls, this is you know we've preserved it. We're great. We're our great civilization has preserved this 
Wonderful. And then everything else can be leveled. So anything outside of that is turned into, you know, palm oil or uh, whatever it is. And I'm, it's, it's, I think it's also um, unfortunate that uh, in, in Europe, there's nothing left. You know, we always talk about these other places, but in, 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 for the most part in Europe, there's, there's no more, there is nothing left to sort of protect. And, and so how do you, do you ever think of, what, what are your thoughts on that, on, on Europe and indigeneity in, in Europe? I mean, as a European person as well. Um, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, we sort of, I sort of jumped ship. I mean, maybe, maybe I can talk about it a bit more because yeah. I think about it a lot. And I, I mean, I have European ancestry too, and, but I live in the Americas and, um, you know, I'm part of the settler culture here and it's a very uncomfortable um position to be in i find and uh i I struggle with it and i often wonder about um you know if if there is a a chance uh for for the this all of us in this dominant culture if we have to somehow abandon this narrative and all that comes with it and it's a daunting enormous task and when you suggest it to people they just think you're out of this uh, out of your mind mm-hmm. but uh i think you're much more out of your mind if you think you know you could continue driving a car and uh have a cell phone with rare earth minerals where there's child slaves digging this stuff out of the earth somewhere forced by people with guns to do it so that you can have this this cell phone in your hands that you're going to replace in two years anyway because well it doesn't play the latest apps and you need to up you know you need the newest one so i I think those people are totally out of you know this whole system is out of its out of its mind and and uh, if you say something rational like you know humans have been part of nature for since the beginning of time and still uh, still are and some people choose to uh, then they think you're completely bonkers because uh, you say something like that so i th- i just think about europe and well europe europe uh, is is at the say the the top of where all these resources are being funneled but you know that's not sustainable either and 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 i know a lot of people must yearn to to have some sort of reconnection with the land um that uh still somewhat exist i think in europe in certain like rituals and uh remembrances of of um more like a pre-christian uh way of living um and also i, I think that I haven't actually looked up the definition of in, indigenous, uh, but, it, you know, we use it to refer to people who are part of the land. I think, does it technically mean to be of the land, like the, the roots of I think the it, it, There's a sort of combination of both sort of first peoples and, mm-hmm. a, and connected to the land. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I was just thinking of the, the, the root of the word, but yeah, it, it means that the people who are originally there uh, is how we use it. But I believe I was reading in, um, in another book, uh, that I, I this author I like Charles Eisenstein. He mentioned that uh, indigeneity means to be of the land. So to reconnect with the land, I think is is so important. And um, I don't know if you if you've had, are, is that something you try to do personally? Reconnect with the place that you're living in and the com- natural communities. I mean, I think it's something that, and I think lockdown has actually sort of forced a lot of people to sort of have that reconnection with the land or just sort of slow down a bit and appreciate it in a way that probably in normal life with people working and getting the kids off to school and all the normal things, they don't have time to sort of stop and slow down and appreciate it. And I certainly feel, you know, just we've recently had floods and I've not been able to go down to the river near my house for a month because the paths were all cut off by flooding and actually getting back down to the river, I thought, oh, wow, I, didn't realize how much I missed just being by the river and having that sort of sense and connection to nature. But I'm also aware of how divorced we are. And I think pretty much everyone in Europe other than Sami and people who, um, who still obviously have that really close connection to the land, how divorced we are compared to, you know, you go and spend time with indigenous people in the forest and, their knowledge and connection to it and their sort of historical connection to it is so astonishing. I feel that any sort of connection that I have is so superficial 
compared to that you know and i often think just like you know the way indigenous people navigate around their forests and i you know i remember the asking some panan once you know how do you find your way around the forest and and they just sort of looked at me like you know i was mad it's like well for us every tree is where we collected you know this was a tree where the you know this is where that plant had grown or you know oh on that hill is where our, my mother is buried or here is where someone gave birth and every every plant or every area every sort of hilltop has a, a story and a history which goes back generations but is also very much their own lived experience and I think I suppose I, I sort of shy away from sort of thinking of my own connection to the land because it just feels so shallow compared to the sort of depth of feeling and the sort of sense of responsibility that that people, indigenous people, have to that land. And I think it's something that if maybe if you haven't experienced it and spent time with people in the forest or wherever you don't it's very difficult to sort of understand that but it's so sort of deeply ingrained and so strong and which is why it's so important you know that their land rights are recognized for their own sort of obviously because they're their rights they should be recognized because they're their rights but also recognized because of the importance to their identity and the meaning that it gives people and you see that people who are divorced from their land, taken away from their land, or their land is destroyed by mining or whatever, the pain that that causes in a way that I think is not the same as if, if in Europe you, you know, obviously it's devastating if you're made homeless or you lose your family home or any of those things, but compared to that sort of sense of identity that, that Indigenous people have with their forest, it, it's, you know, I think it's on quite a different level. It's losing everything, right? Like, they, like yeah. you mentioned, that tree isn't just a tree that I don't know, you know, it could be any tree and I can't tell them apart. I mean, I, I think about how few trees I can even tell apart. But, you know, that tree, like you said, is the tree where one, you know, my brother climbed up and he collects honey every hour and I, I go to, you know, there's every tree is known, every every area is known, like that's the patch where the really nice um Uh, ferns grow that we pick when the seasons change and so on it's and in my own I, i i like foraging myself personally i go out and i collect things in the woods and i i can sort of off my small little experiences trying to um become more or or just enjoying foraging and i like i can i can draw a parallel i could see i can extend like If if that was cut down, I I see already the the subdiv incoming subdivision signs where I like to go, and it it just breaks my heart. And then, but I'm not even there all the time. Imagine I can just imagine I can't even imagine how horrible it must be when when you live there and it's all torn down. But I I think also all of us who who don't live in in that world who live in this place with drive through um coffee and you know you know supersized uh, whatever and suvs i think we live with a pain um a deep pain and a, an emptiness because we don't have it's already been cut down we've already been unindigenized you know we've we've been we are the settlers we are the we are the um people living in the system And there, there is a, an emptiness that we feel. And uh, I think part of the sort of the resentment that people feel or the, the auto response of like, oh, those people need to, you know, they need to join the, they're backwards. I think that's almost like a defense mechanism or that's been conditioned into them. Um, but inside there's somewhere that they, they can't bring themselves to actually see the beauty of it and the truth of it because it hurts so much you know, the conditions that they're in and it would actually sort of derail them from this idea of, well, yeah, I actually do need a bigger house and a bigger, faster car. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, isn't it? When you can see people who have what to people outside seems like nothing in terms of material possessions, but are very happy and contented and actually, you know, they tell us we're rich. You know, I, I, the number of different communities who said that, you know, we live like Kings hunter gatherer peoples or people who live in the forest and, but also plants, you know, they, they 
have everything that they need or that they and this sense of pride in the land and their way of life and you know this notion you know we live like kings or we're really rich in our land if you for people outside for whom to live like a king means that you have to have a palace or you have to have the latest phone or whatever that is a big challenge i suppose to your your identity and the things that give your life meaning if you realize that actually those things are not the things that make you happy but being part of a community being um having a sort of sense of connection having time to spend with your family and friends i mean the time that hunter-gatherer peoples have because it's such an efficient way of life and you know everything that you need to do can be done in four or five hours and the rest of the time you're telling stories and playing with your children and spending time you know down in the river having fun it's a it's a challenge to to capitalism frankly and why should everybody (laughs) carry on with this sort of relentless drive to get more and bigger greater things when actually the happiest people that I know are the people living in the forest who still have their land Mm -hmm. and conversely some of the most you know, distraught and devastated people are the ones who've had that, but have had it stolen from them from because of mining or conservation or where also they're promised that what they're getting is progress. And I think that's one of the sort of biggest things that we have to challenge this notion that that's progress, that, you know, moving away from being a hunter-gatherer, living a settled life rather than a nomadic life or coming out of the forest is progress. I attended a a, a forum yesterday at the Cambridge Conservation Forum at Cambridge University and there was a panel with three, was organised by some students talking about conservation resettlement in India and they were very much presenting only one side of the story of, you know, communities, generally not indigenous communities who wanted to come out of the forest Um, and they were presenting this all as sort of win-win without talking about obviously the forced evictions and and sort of devastation that those cause and the name the word progress got chucked around a lot and just sort of slipped in you know oh well you know these people want progress or you know they need progress and you think whose progress you know that this the thing i always want to ask you know i remember the panan saying to me you know when they come and they tell us that this is progress they'll build us a road or they're gonna you know turn our forest into a you know, log our forest, this is progress. But for us, progress is land rights. For us, progress is having control of our land and being able to make our own choices. And I just don't understand how other people, you know, how this notion of progress is used to justify all sorts of crimes in terms of the theft of people's land and, you know, devastation of their environment whether it's mining or sort of development projects or conservation and it's such a lie because progress means different things to everybody and unless you're asking somebody what is your notion of progress and listening to them and ensuring that's what happens which may be having our land rights and being able to choose what we want to do with our lives it's you know it can't be progress it can only be devastation I mean, how, where does this progress even lead us? I mean, we're, we're supposedly the most developed uh, people, the result of progress. And, and the people around us and uh, people in our world are uh, taking drugs just to cope with living in this, you know, wonderful utopia we've created. And uh, we get into car accidents and we smash. And then, you know, Tiger Woods, who's the most successful golfer of all time, just had this accident and he's constantly having back spasms. And it's because, you know, he, he was conditioned by, you know, his dad to be this perfect individual. And, you know, a hunter-gatherer person would never do that to their child, like just, you know, force them to be a certain way. You know, you have freedom, you have friends, you, there's no, um, there's not this pressure the way there is in, in our world. And, they, you know, everyone's stressed out here. You, you're trying to, you know, when you're, you're thinking about how am I going to retire? You know, once you're uh, out of school, like it's, it's so ridiculous. What, what the idea of progress and um, you know, people, people who just haven't 
you know, clue, checked in and clue, thought about it much, you know, they'll say, well, Sophie, you know, you're being very romantic. You're just romanticizing those, those indigenous peoples. You're just romanticizing uh, these wild people. You know, they need progress. They need, they don't have running water. They don't have, you know, they don't have penicillin. They need penicillin. Oh my God, you're being romantic. I find it like very annoying when people bring that up because I think if anyone's being romantic, it's them about this whole idea of progress. There's people who kill themselves here, commit suicide because of all this progress, but you never see people in the forest kill themselves. It, it, it's just, it, it's an, it never happens. The people don't think about that. You know, it was, it's yeah, a it's brainer. Not us that, it's not us that's saying it, you know, I mean, I agree. And you know, we get this a lot, you know, you're romantic or you're trying to keep them in some sort of zoo or, right. you know, or you're trying to preserve people. As so it's like, well, no, what we're saying is that people should have their own choice to their rights and their choice so they can make their own decisions. And it, nobody is staying the same. Everybody changes everybody always has changed. They just change in the direction that they want to go in unless they're forced into doing it in a different way because somebody has imposed progress or throwing them off their land or whatever. And so, you know, it's not my romantic view that says they say they live like kings. I'm not saying they live like kings. It's them that are telling me we live like kings. We're rich in our land, you know. We want to carry on living on our in our forest. You know, they... I always remember Davi Yanomami um, came over years ago to, to London and the journalist asked him, you know, sort of, what do you think of, you know, London? And, and I think they were thinking he was going to be really impressed. You know, here's this guy, lives in the forest. He's going to be really impressed by London. And he was just like, you all live on top of each other like wasps in a wasp's nest. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, you know, this sort of notion, this sort of colonial notion that we have that, you know, every people from who live in the forest want what we have. And of course, you know, a lot of people who live in the forest want, you know, they want to have a mobile phone so they can communicate so that they can um, tell the fam, you know, communicate or do whatever, you know, yes. things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't stop them having that relationship with the forest. It doesn't turn them into something different that they have maybe, you know, a mobile phone or a motorbike so they can get to market. And this sort of, what is the sort of romantic notion is that someone has to stay the same rather than they use and adapt the same things that we use and adapt, but in their own way and in a way that is fits in and, and, and suits their own way of life. It doesn't mean that they, you know, are then going to spend their time watching YouTube videos of people falling over. <laughs> or maybe they will spend some of their time watching I, videos. I, 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 I can say those are very popular where I, where I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that is also true. But, you know, it's not, that doesn't stop you being an indigenous person with a connection to the forest. It just means you do that, but you also have a watch, you know, you, you get people who go, well, he's not indigenous. He's got a watch. And you're like, yeah. that'd be ridiculous. You know, of course. Well, I, I think one, one thing to point out too, that for, is that uh, many of the things that, you know, people are acquiring that seem like, well, that doesn't fit your, you know, the, the look I want you to have is because also that the conditions have been changed. You know, there is a road now where there used mm -hmm. to be a, a, a forest and well, I can't walk on foot over it because it's hot and it's uncomfortable and there's cars. So I need the car. I need the, 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 the motorbike to get to the place where I can hunt. I can't hunt from where I've been settled by the government or, you know, that's put me in this brick house where I used to live in a forest in a thatched hut. So these, a lot of the things that, you know, I, I want and I need now are because they've been, you know, forced to, to take them on or else, you know, how else can one continue? And I actually, when you were speaking about the, the, um, the sort of assimilation of, of people's, uh, the the schooling came up the you know schooling oh my goodness education oh education is the savior of people this narrative really bugs me because um i mean there's just so much that you miss out when you when you go to school there's so much that you're wrong that's taught to you and it's just such an unnatural uh thing in uh, school so I, I know you survival has a campaign about um factory schooling and and i think that's very um 
uh, important. And, and, uh, are you involved, are you involved with the, um, the schooling or the, yeah, a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I have been, I'm not the person, the main person involved in it, but I have been, you know, involved and, and yeah, I mean, horrified by the sort of mainstreaming sort of notions of so many schools that, really have so much in common with the um, residential schooling in Canada and the US and Australia in a sort of their colonial attitudes of that, you know, you have to bring sort of progress to sort of de-indigenize the children by taking them out of those environments. And we see that, you know, in India, we see it a lot, um, but also Malaysia, lots of places where they're having where where indigenous children are taken out and and put particularly in residential schools um they're not forced in the way that they were in canada and the us in the past but there's so much pressure um on the families and they're constantly told you know you have to do this your children need to go to school rather than saying what you know and 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 so much of of the narrative of of the teachers and the sort of the education is you know you need to sort of bring these children into the 21st century you know have and you hear that a lot in you know said about the panan or mm-hmm. you know other hunter-gatherer peoples you know they an education is seen as the is the key to that stop you your know, backwards things stop doing your yeah, backwards stuff yeah and, absolutely yeah and whereas what survival is arguing which is what a lot of ind- indigenous peoples tell us that they want is they they want to be able to educate their own children on their own land in their own languages so of course children indigenous children who don't go to school are not uneducated they're educated in the ways of the community so they learn enormous things they learn the science because they learn of the medicine and they they learn about the history of the community they learn about religious studies through the you know the 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 myths or whatever so they have an education but Obviously, a lot of people also want their children to have some of the sort of outside education too. So they want to be able to, you know, Orang Rimba in um, Sumatra, um, they, I was talk, been talking to them quite a lot about the schooling. And, you know, they say, we want to, we want our children to learn so we're not tricked because we go to the market and they, they trick us because we don't know how much things should cost or we can't read the piece of paper or... Um, and there, the, they've set up a school with help from WASI, a local organization, where they're teaching the children in the forest, in their own language, and the kids learn a mixture, you know, the, the, they're learning maths and they're learning geography and Indonesian, but they're also, but they're learning it in their own language. They're learning, um, they're also learning while in the forest. And if the kids get bored, you know, they're out in the forest, if the kids get bored, they say, let's just go and get some fish, you know, go mm-hmm. fishing instead. Or, you know, Absolutely. while they're fishing, the, the teachers will be talking to them and the kids are teaching the ch- teachers and the children. And it's such a contrast. And I spent some time um, a year or so ago with a, one of these forest schools with the Orang Rimba. And it was just, I mean, to be honest, when I first came, I you know walked into the forest and we came across this school of these kids just sort of lounging around with their textbooks, doing you know of all different ages, doing these things so happily, and I sort of contrasted it in my mind with the you know <laughs> horrific scenes you see of you know these giant school in India with twenty seven thousand children all with their identical uniform lined up in a massive sort of assembly area outside with their you know every child from each year with a matching haircut so they know what year they're you know just so dehumanized and and you've got these kids just sort of crawling over each other and sort of hugging the teachers and off down to the river for a quick sort of bathe or fish or whatever and you know a bird comes over and they all get their catapults out (laughs) you know it was just such a contrast and the elders from the community will come and talk to the kids about you know some of their you know their stories and all of that is interwoven and you know that sort of schooling where children it's under the community's control it's on, on the community's land in the community's language where they get to choose the things that are important for them to learn and there was this wonderful story from um, an Orang Rimba uh, 
family there was a that some people had come and they'd said you know we want to sign I can't they, were, they wanted to sign some agreements I can't exactly remember what the agreement was about but it was you know we want to sign this agreement these are your you know please sign here and they they got one of the kids to read it out because none of the older people could read and the kid read it out and they discovered it was nothing to do with what they were being mm. told they were going to sign. It was some tenancy agreement for something completely unrelated that was entirely designed to sort of trick them. And, but because the kid had learned to read, but they'd learned to read and they were still living in the forest. They hadn't been sent off to school somewhere where they had to learn, you know, stand by the Indonesian flag and learn you know all the stuff that didn't mean everything that wasn't important to them as well they were there to be able to you know read this and so the whole community realized that these people were just trying to trick them and send them on their way and you know so there's there's so much more that could be done if indigenous people are trusted and given the right to choose and control their their schooling rather than sort of imposing this sort of outside education on them and sort of saying you know we know better and you know basically a schooling that's going to get you make you a, you know give you a job in the mainstream which is you know maybe what some people want but many of them don't and and but it what it does is divorces them from their land they miss out on all of the rituals they miss out on going out with their families hunting and gathering they don't learn about the medicines they mm -hmm. don't learn this incredible knowledge that they're missing out on because there's a, you know, the guy who runs this huge school in, um, in India, he sort of described the tribal children, you know, tribal who say, Oh, well, some of them live in trees. They don't know anything, you know, and you're just like, this is a man in charge of 27,000 oh. tribal children's education. And he has such a sort of dismissive attitude to their knowledge and the, the values of their, of their, communities and their ways of life and it's so important that that's not what's instilled in children as they're growing up at school they're they're given a sense of pride because and that their ways of life have value and mm -hmm. are worth learning about which is the opposite of the message they get when they're sent out to school and, and taught in the mainstream absolutely if you go to a school you're not going to that telling you that your parents way of living is backwards and and primitive and you know needs to be uh, changed that you're not going to want to live like them you're going to want to become an engineer or a doctor but the level of education they give you and also your your perceived value in societies of this lowly savage um uh, then you're not going you're just going to become a maid or a security guard or you know and it's 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 unfor it's really it's it's so terrible and of course you and i and everyone else in this world has been is sort of like a, to a lesser degree been in one of those factory schools where we've been conditioned and you're not allowed to think that way about uh, indigenous peoples and about the land because no the progress development iphones all this stuff it's it's horrible it's um i i think there's a great opportunity like for 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 us to learn, for us who are stuck in this this uh, self-perpetuating, you know, civilization, to, to learn from indigenous peoples, from people like the Oram Rimba, about what it, what it, how to be human again. I mean, we're we're so far off of far away from being humans. I, I, we're like half machine and and just running on this this program, this narrative that we, we don't even know what it means to be human anymore and you know, they don't even need to think about it. You know, they, they know. And why, why not look to them? Why, why doesn't every school here start with a curriculum uh, with a program where at least for some part of every student's time in school that they experience, uh, 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 I learn from indigenous peoples. Like if we're, if, if Canada, if the Canadian government's really sorry about everything that happened here, you know, why not, why not say like, all right, Let's learn from you. you. You were here first. Okay. Teach us how to live here. But no, it's just, you know, we're sorry. Okay. And um, you're alcoholics because you uh, miss the gene that uh, allows you to, the enzyme that allows you to process alcohol. No, it's because of all the trauma, it's residential school, all that stuff. It's not just because of this, this gene that you're missing. It's so, it's so ridiculous. Oh. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's the world we're in.
Um, maybe, maybe, uh, do you still have some time, uh, a few more minutes? Yeah. I'd like to ask you about like your personal experiences there and, uh, just maybe some more of the less heartbreaking sides of just some of the, <laughs> sorry, uh, I know it's no, terrible. Not, not, it's not your you fault. I mean, that's what I always bring up. I always hear that from people. It's like, oh, Phil, you're so negative. Like, what's there to be positive around? You know, like, I, I don't want another drive-through uh, coffee shop opening up and, you know, you just see everything else being destroyed. And like, what, how can I be positive? Someone's got to point out the madness. So, but what I do like to, what I think people do, um, what really resonates with people or like draws them in is these stories of like when you're actually with people who live in the forest, you can't help but just kind of fall in love with them and the the beauty of the forest and understand it more and appreciate it. Um, There's a, when I describe uh, my time with the uh, Batek people to people, I'm like, you don't, you can't imagine people like that. If you only know this world of you know, parking lots and um, scheduled time and, um, uh, you know, written language, numbers, quantifiable things. You can like that world might as well not exist. Like it's unimaginable. I, I think, um, uh, who's the explorer? He's, he's one of your supporters, uh, at survival the explorer, um, did the show tribe. Oh, um, I don't know his name. But yeah, yeah, Bruce we should know Carey. his name, right? Bruce yeah, Bruce Carey. Bruce Carey. He also mentioned, like, uh, in all his, his all his stays with all the people he'd been with, you know, that when he visited Penan, they were like, on any other people, you know, they were just like, and that I think that's the um, the hunt. What's so interesting about hunter gatherers is they really do. They like anything you could say about humans here, like the, the opposite is true of uh, hunter gatherers. So I don't know if there's any. What was it like when you visited the Penan? Uh, I mean, there must have been so many things, but when, yeah. when did you visit the Penan, actually? Um, I'm trying to remember, actually, when it was. It was quite a f- seven or eight years ago, maybe, I visited them. And the first time that... The first... I mean, I was meeting with people um, in the city first and then went out into the forest. And, and the first Penan group that I met were... From, a semi-nomadic group of Penan and they were actually deep in the forest when I first met them. So they have a sort of a a settlement house, but they spend a lot of their time out in the forest and and, and nomadic. And I met a group of them just out in the forest and it was just, it's meeting a community in the middle of the forest and they have these like signs. So we were with a, someone who knew the community very well and they leave these little signs in the forest that anybody else that would just walk past and they wouldn't notice that there was this like sort of bent bit of fern or whatever and but for them they know that this is a message and this might be a message that says you know we're this way or it might be a message that says you know there's some great honey down there or you know this this incredible intricate information systems that they leave for each other and so you know we we found out where they were because from what looked to me like a bit of broken twig was a sign that said you know we're down here and and we went and they were actually searching for somebody that had got lost in the forest in a complicated story where he'd been sort of abducted by some loggers and um but we were just in the middle of nowhere and it was just magical and just so you know the 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 warmth of the people the strength of them that's you know the 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 sort of resilience and determination that they had to protect their forest and their way of life and there's also you know they have this sense because everybody around them is telling them you know you're the most backward people you're the most because you're hunter gatherers and that's the sort of lowest sort of level and you know more development is is from you know the the more settled people around who plant you know and they're just not interested in planting and they were just like you know well it's just grass really (laughs) it's planting business why would you bother to plant you know you've got the forest and you've got their knowledge of the forest you know it's like well okay we're hungry now so someone goes off and they come back with this huge monkey that we're gonna have for some and you know oh well you know time for a bath well there's a river down here you know and and it's just the sort of 
what seems to other people from outside, you know, and often if I tell people, you know, I'm going to go to the forest, you know, the first thing they say is, oh, God, how do you cope with all the creepy crawlies and, the, you know, the sort of animals and everything? And it's like, well, and for us, for people, it just feels like an alien or dangerous environment. And they're so relaxed there. And the kids are just so relaxed. And I, you know, I... The whole time I was there, never, you know, no, never saw a child arguing amongst them. You know, the kids just have this sort of mellowness. And there's such a lovely, and I think in a lot of ways, hunter-gatherer people, or the hunter-gatherer people that I've met, have this very sort of strong sense of, you know, you can't tell other people what to do. You can't, you shouldn't tell your children what to do. You, They have to make their own way, but you set an example to them and actually it's such a great example generally <laughs> follow you don't see the kids running off and being naughty and doing sort of things and they're just there's such a sort of warmth and relaxedness in the forest and at homeness i think that's the sense you really get this sense of of peace and at homeness in the forest which i don't know i don't think i'm describing it very well but i think when you're there you just get this sense and it just all makes sense you sort of think this is it this is why you're so determined to carry on living in your forest this is why you've fought you've put up barricades and blockades to stop the loggers this is why you're prepared to sort of risk imprisonment and harassment from the government and threats from the loggers to defend this because it's so important and it is just a sense of sort of peace and at homeness when you're there living in that environment and I think it's magical there is you know that sounds romantic maybe it is romantic but it's the truth it's what you feel when you're with people living absolutely sort of connected to nature and symbiotically with nature. That's what I wanted to point out is like how can we even we all long for that we're humans we're the same humans that we're our hunt we're all hunter gatherers right ultimately but we we don't we live in this place of real estate like how can we even have that connection when you buy a place knowing that in five years the value of it's going to appreciate or and then i'll sell it so i can live in a more expensive place and everyone's doing that so no one really cares whether we live like how can one even imagine that that level of connection is possible that amount of feeling of homeness and yet every one of us longs for it every one of us longs to be that at peace and so connected with the other people around them and and that much at ease We're, like the reason we strive for to have so much money and things is so we can live a life of ease but hunter gatherers live the most sim- simple life of ease i mean, I mean simple in in the sense that the, the, they don't have the worries except when the loggers come and the you know the missionaries and all the bullshit but i mean when things are good they, there's this there's not it's not a, a stressful life and they have so much abundance that um, it makes our life seem very impoverished. It, when you understand and can appreciate what, what they have, it, we're so impoverished here, especially in, in the social world that you described as well. I mean, their social world includes the trees. Their social world includes the animals and the water and, and, and each other. And, it's, and, and those um, the ways of communicating that you mentioned with the, with the little signs and putting leaves in them and wrapping them in a certain way. Like it's just the the intelligence, there's no lack of intelligence uh, that, you know, our, our uh, narrative, the the narrative of civilization sort of describes them as being somehow lacking of intelligence or any capabilities. It's, it's so sad. And I love the, I love these stories. These are the best, like, I haven't unfortunately been able to really be deep in the forest with uh, the people I've visited, but just in the sort of secondary forest and in the settlements. But even there, you, you get a sense of just how, how much more easy are the children not being feeling like they need to sort of, be, you know, behave or something. I saw a, a boy, um, he had a, he had a, a parang uh, or a machete or something like a big knife. And he was, he was just banging away on a plastic bottle. He was probably about, I don't know, five years old or less, maybe, maybe four. And, and no one was even concerned that he was doing this. And, and neither was I, because I, you know, I had read about the, in, in anthropological literature about just how, you know, pretty much care carefree they are when it comes to these sort of things. So I didn't make a big deal of it, but my friend who I was with was really concerned. He's like, oh, there's this kid with his knife. Like what's, shouldn't we do something about it? And, um, 
but all the kids were so having just a great time, just uh, laughing and, and uh, no one, there's no antagonism between them, which was really nice. Whereas in our world, you know, you see it in kids already, the teasing, the sort of, no, I'm better than you. They're just not present over there. Um, incredible. Um, yeah. I always notice the knives as well. It's just, it's so funny. And <laughs> you and you're right that you're there because everybody else is so completely relaxed. Like this toddler has got a huge prank <laughs> and nobody reacts. And so you're also relaxed because you're yeah. like, well, okay, they know that this kid knows their limits and stuff. And then I'm at home and my own toddler picked up a knife and I'd be like, no, <laughs> don't grab it. Because I know that my toddler hasn't spent the entire, it's life sort of strapped to me watching how I, you know, and, and just learned how to do it. And it's, there is that just incredible sort of freedom. And I think that's something that whenever I go to indigenous communities and I just, the freedom that the children have, the just roaming in the forest and, you know, and the conservationists, you know, one of the things they often say is, you know, people want to come out because they're terrified of the wild animals. You know, they're terrified of, this is such a common thing. I was hearing it in this conference thing yesterday you know the people that the human wildlife conflict you know they're they're terrified and you say this to the people and they're just laughing their heads off you know we're not scared of the you know the, we're not scared of the wildlife the soliga in india they say this thing where they say oh we just tell our children if you meet a tiger you just call it a dog and it's so offended that you call <laughs> it a dog it goes <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely that's a brilliant story and so you know they just you know we're not scared of the tiger if we see one we just call it a dog and it'll won't go off in a huff you know and it's like but because but actually they know that the tigers know they're there they know the tiger are there and they know that they don't cause each other any trouble and there is that sort of respect and symbiosis between the two and so the, why should the tiger be bothering them? Because it knows that it's not good. They're not going to bother it. And so, you know, but it's just that sort of freedom and relaxing nature in the forest that, you know, and it always feels like a shock to come. Well, you know, as soon as you get out of the forest, you're generally back in somewhere with logging roads or, you know, a, a sort of big city. And, but it, it's a huge jar and you know to to come out when you when you're there because actually they're right life's good in the forest Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you have your land in your forest there was a studies done on um happiness and they they did these happiness ratings and they found that the maasai who obviously are not hunter gatherers or living in the forest but indigenous people who have their own land they were the maasai that they when they did this happiness test were equally happy as the world's richest billionaires. And I often think that when I'm with an indigenous community and I think, yeah, why well, you certainly look happier to me than the billionaires. Right. And I don't know any billionaires, but and there's, there's a happiness for a group of people, not just this one guy who sits on yeah. top of, you know, his Amazon fortune or something. Oh, what was it like in, in, in India where you went? So, well, actually, I'm unfortunately banned from India because the Indian government at the moment is not very keen on people who push for the rights of indigenous peoples. And so I'm currently banned from going. So I haven't been to India for ages. And the last time I was there, I was in the Andaman Islands, but not with the indigenous communities there because they're recently contacted or uncontacted. So I don't go onto their land or you know obviously but so I was there just lobbying governments while aware that they were people in the forest and wanting to ensure that their rights to continue to live in that forest were were recognized so I've not been able to go to the forests in mainland India for to to talk to the people but fortunately um, communications on phones and things enable me to do that and obviously I have colleagues and other people who have gone in and, and spend a lot of time and collect information and data and testimonies and things from people there. Did, uh, is there any other place where you've been really like uh, into the forest or into the, maybe it's a desert, like this in the sun, um, Bushman communities, uh, Kung San, or there, have you been other places where the, the environment is still very much intact, the place is intact? Yeah, so in um, in Sumatra, I went, there's 
and spent time with the Orang Rimba in, so Sumatra obviously has been terribly devastated by plantations and particularly palm oil, but also rubber and acacia. But there is a national park there that actually was set up fairly uniquely as a national park that was for both the Orang Rimba people and the wildlife. And so the Orang Rimba in the forest there are able to live and hunt and gather. And there, you know, that's pretty magical to be there when you know that they're surrounded actually outside the park by this terrible devastation and you also see this sort of huge contrast of the Orang Rimba who are forced to live at the side of the road and those who are still living in their forest and you know there's that's such a strong you know lesson in in the difference that having your land and being able to you know continue to hunt and gather and and what a difference it makes to people so i've been able to spend time with them i've also spent time in siberia with hanty people um in the um in the taiga there so in sort of forested areas there where there is a lot of oil and gas exploitation but not where i was i was able to go and, and spend time with people who had, had been fighting against it um and again you just get you know there's that very strong sense of community that incredible sort of connection to the land obviously completely different you know minus 25 degrees reindeer herding and hunting so people did a mixture of both reindeer herding and hunting and gathering what little that grew but you know again you've still got that incredible sort of sense of connection to the land and generosity to outsiders you know someone sacrificed their last reindeer in honor of my visit much to my horror <laughs> um when she was determined that we were going to eat this reindeer and um and you know just this sort of warmth and and contentedness that people who have that connection to the land have when when they when they're able to live off the land it's been wonderful having you on and and uh, hopefully you can join us again yeah no i'd love to it's been great to you know i could talk for hours as you could probably tell about <laughs> well, we'll, do, <laughs> we'll do it in installments and uh, i'll put up the links um if you have any uh specific ones please send them my way and i'll, I'll post them great will do thanks sophie it's all right wonderful. lovely to talk to you yeah bye bye